You are listening to the Converge Media Network, uplifting our voices. Prosperity in Black America. What will this require? Is Black business prospering? Are we reaching women and minority-owned businesses? How do we achieve earning parity for wealth for our families? I'm that provocateur of change. I am Cindy Bright. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to Heartbeat. I'm your host, Cindy Bright. Thank you for joining us this evening as I continue to uh, elevate and propel the topic of the targeting of Black women. This is a topic I feel uh, does not get enough attention nationally uh, or locally for that matter. Um, It tends to be uh, when issues arise, it's in the one news cycle and then gone away. And I have decided uh, that we're not going to do that here at Heartbeat. We're going to continue to keep these issues in the forefront, talking about what's happening with Black women. Now, from my perspective, it's escalating, and um, I have a good lineup of uh, commentators on with me this evening to discuss uh, these issues. The things I would say about um, us as Black women before I introduce in uh, the first guest on the show, because I'm, I want to talk about what's happening down in Oakland, California. But there are some things I want to say about what's happening, right? So there are, you know, in, invisible Black women just seem to be very invisible, um, ignored, not believed when we speak out or raise issues, um, set up, set up in the workplace. Uh, there's a playbook that goes around. It's very common. I'm going to talk about that a little bit. Uh, with one of our local judges and what is starting to happen in that regard. You'll be uh, interested in this. And as I said, when I had Dr. Johnson on a few weeks ago, I said, you know, we get hunted for, um, we as Black women, all highly educated, all have letters behind our names. And it's perplexing to me how we could be so successful individually, but we are not deemed or received or being successful in the workplace. And so, you know, hunted for and then hunted down. Um, And so this is a real problem. And I think we need to continue to keep this conversation in the forefront. Uh, For the first uh, part of the show, I wanna talk about what's going on in Oakland, California, because it is not getting a lot of national attention, but I wanna welcome in Karen Fleshman. Karen has been on Heartbeat. She's a regular commentator that comes on regularly. She is an activist uh, out of the Bay Area, out of San Francisco. Uh, She's very um, outspoken and active in Black community. And so, Karen, welcome back to Heartbeat this evening. Are you able to hear us, Karen? I think she's, all right, looks like she's still trying to get her her audio set up there. Let me welcome in our other guests that we have on with us this evening because they'll all have something very interesting to say about it. Let me welcome in regular commentator Aaron Jones, who's here often with me. Aaron uh, is an equity uh, person here in Washington State. She does a lot uh, in the education space. She has a lot of intel uh, and insight on Black women issues. Let me also introduce in a new uh, person to our show uh, who does a lot of research Um, on um, democracy and extremism. And she has some really interesting perspectives about Black women as well. Let's welcome Michelle Dotson in with us this evening as well. This is her first time on Heartbeat. Hi, Michelle. Hi, Erin. Can you guys, can you hear me? I can hear you now, but we couldn't hear you before. Okay. Did you not hear some of the words uh, in my intro? Okay. Like every other word. (laughs) Okay. What I was saying, um, what I was starting off with is the fact that I am working to keep these issues around the targeting of Black women in the forefront. And post, um, you know, the the last few weeks after Dr. Johnson was fired, I just feel compelled to keep talking about these issues because they're being ignored. Um, And some of the language that I used in the intro were things like, you know, we're invisible in this world, we're ignored, um, we are not believed, we are set up, we are hunted, like there are so many things to say about 
what's happening to Black women. And it's perplexing how us who have all of this um, academic success and have done a lot in our lives, how we can be in this position still today. When I think, when we talk about racial disparities here in the country and the way that they're impacting classes of people, it is black women that are impacted the most. And so I wanted to just get some perspective from you guys both about what you're seeing and observing. And then Michelle, in some of your research work, uh, work what are some of the trends that you're seeing? Erin, did you have some thoughts about that? Yeah, it's interesting. I was just on a call with um, a friend of Karen Fleischman's, um, Allie Collins, who was the school director in San Francisco. She's a black, light-skinned black woman, and she um, ended up being recalled off of her school board. She was targeted as a black woman on her school board in San Francisco. And we did a show last night about the targeting of black women oh. um, in education. We we're specifically talking about parents and teachers who show up at school directors meetings and the ways that black people are being targeted. And then I brought in that um, right now, um, Ed Bloom, who's the, the lawyer who brought the case to the Supreme Court um, against affirmative action, he now is targeting LA Unified School District. I just read this before I got on here today. Um, and he is hoping to eliminate any programming to support black children um, to even be able to get ready for college. And um, the reason I bring that up is because he is now targeting Black people there. The very first Black woman president or chair of the teachers union in LA is a friend of mine. Her name is Cecily, and she just finished her, her term as the chair of the UT, UTLA, and she had death threats every single week, every single week on the job as the chair of the teachers union, she experienced death threats. And so um, this is something we're seeing everywhere. When you talk about the invisibilization of us, you know, I stand at six feet tall with a big giant Afro. I can't tell you the numbers of times people will say, oh, I didn't see you there. Oh, wait, were you in the room? Really? Or I'll say something and it's as if I didn't say anything and five minutes later, some white person says it and oh, people are like, that's so awesome. And I'm like, I think I just said that five minutes ago. Um, and I think about Judge Katanji Brown and the ways that people are responding to her response to the to the affirmative action ruling and um, questioning her, the reason that she got into college and um, where she has demonstrated her brilliance time and time and time again. So I just wanna affirm everything that you said. Um, I have experienced it, but then as I talk to women across the country um, and listen to rhetoric on social media, I'm seeing evidence of it everywhere that I go. Yeah. Karen, oh, Michelle, do you have something to say? Let me just also say I'm hearing a lot of background, so we might want to all mute when we're not speaking. Michelle, were you about to add to that? Okay, I can't hear you. <laughs> we need, you, we to need you to get unmuted. Get unmuted. Let's see, let me bring, let's just talk with Karen here for a second. Um, Karen, thank you for joining tonight. I know you have a lot. You're out of San Francisco. You've been here uh, on here many times, but we're, I, I'm eager to hear um, what is happening down in Oakland. Like I saw and I've been reading, I think I even brought an overlay to show um, the, about the increased um, black, black women, women black, black girls girl being um, kidnapped. They're being can you talk to us a little bit about what's going on there? Area is has a lot of contradictions. You know, on the one hand, uh, we've always been a center of Black liberation. This is where the Black Panthers uh, were founded. This is wh where Angela Davis uh, lives. You know, we we have a long history there, and we also have a long history of exploitation and uh, violence against Black people. And um, July 22nd is a very significant date here in San Francisco. It's Mario Woods Day. So when SFPD executed Mario Woods, the, the Board of Supervisors passed July 2nd, uh, July 22nd, which is his birthday, um, to be um, the official Mario Woods Day in the city of San Francisco. And uh, July 22nd is also the day when Nia Wilson was killed by a white supremacist on the BART 
stabbed in the neck and her sister was stabbed as well. And she, in a horrific, horrific crime, um, died of her injuries right there on the BART. So this is really top of mind um, right during this, this time period. Um, and as far as the missing Black women and girls, you know, we have always been a center of sex trafficking. Uh, Oakland in particular, if you go to International Boulevard, it's just so many um, uh, sex um, workers and, and, and children, you know, really, really young, young people being out there. And so I'm very grateful that um, some elected officials and community-based organizations are really bringing a focus on the fact that of the 1,500 missing people in Oakland, 400 of them are Black women and girls. Because we know that if we don't bring the focus, no resources will be allocated. Instead, it will all go to missing white women. Do you have a perspective about what the either the ratio is of, you know, is it a broader number when you include both white women and black women about the trafficking uh, coming out of Oakland? I don't have any statistics on uh, how many of the women being trafficked in Oakland, um, what their racial um, race and ethnicities are. But I will say it is very international. Mm. And there are there are white women among the the women who are being trafficked in and out of Oakland. And it just breaks my heart because the Bay Area is one of the few places in the country where women hold real political power. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the mayor of Oakland is a woman. The former police chief of Oakland was a woman. The uh, you know, here in San Francisco. Um, uh, we have a woman mayor, Nancy Pelosi, Barbara Lee represents Oakland. So it, it's this conundrum where personally, I have never felt so safe as I do in the Bay Area in terms of I don't get sexually harassed. Um, you know, it feels very safe to me walking around the street, but then that's because I'm a white woman. You know, I, I don't, um, I'm not worried that I'm going to get kidnapped, but the, the, the stories coming out of Oakland are absolutely terrible. Like uh, a, a girl and her boyfriend um, having uh, uh, eating together in a, in a fast food restaurant and then men approach with guns and, and force the girl off, abduct the girl right there. And it's just terrible things that are happening. So we really need to come together as a community um, to decrease violence in general. It's interesting. Is, is Michelle still in the um, backstage area? Let's try. Michelle, uh, can you hear me? I wanted to make sure you add it to this as well. Let's see if we can hear yeah, you. I, I can hear you. Can you hear me? Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, then let me come back in here because I think it may be working. I think I fixed it. Okay. You Did you have something to add to this? You had your hand up at a moment and I wanted to make sure we got you in. Go ahead. I'll give you the. So a couple of things. Um, one, this is a time. So I, th I thought about what Aaron said. Oh, oh, three things I'm going to add. I'm going to triple up here. Ed Bloom. So I lived in San Diego in the late 90s, mid 90s through early 2000s. This is Ed Bloom's second pass in California, just so you know. So I worked at UCSD. Um, it's his second pass in LA even. So um, UCLA and UCSD are the only um, UC schools that have charter schools that are designed to matriculate students from low income, first time, first generation college student households into um, college 
whether it's community college, UC schools, San Diego State schools, UCLA and UCSD have charter schools on campus. That's one of the things that they're targeting because they're highly successful. So we developed the price school at UCSD to model what the school that UCLA had. I see. So that's one thing. I don't know if you guys saw the article, Wesleyan Mm -hmm. University today rescinded its alumni legacy, the legacy program. Yes, we will see more of that. So I wanted to get that in. Mm -hmm. The targeting, this is what, what, so it's not just Katanji Brown Jackson, it's Sonia Sotomayor. She's the moral conscience. Because I am African-American and Panamanian, African-Panamanian, I see and grew up in a, a neighborhood in Seattle, Seward Park, Mount Baker, that was very mixed, but predominantly Black and Jewish. We, this is a time when we have to, uh, we have to be each other's allies because there is strength in numbers. Mm-hmm. And in terms of keeping each other safe, that is where we are. We have to count on, because this is the first time. And Elena Kagan, it's funny how Justice Roberts attacked her specifically for talking about the 303 creative decision. The first time a protected class has ever had its rights rescinded. And that's about all of us. It's about privacy Mm -hmm. protections. They're coming for our privacy Mm -hmm. next. And that has to do with domestic violence. I bring that up because it's going to dovetail on extremism and domestic violence, which I'm trying to get to. They're Mm -hmm. going to hear a case next term. Every ATF agent will tell you, worth their salt will tell you, there is a through line to domestic violent extremism, mass shooters, especially school, these school mass shooters. You, I, I wish I had um, a run of show to pop up. A, I, I will have it next time to show you the statistics. These mass shooters, there's a, a absolute through line from domestic violent or domestic incidences at home, they shoot their grandmother, they shoot their mother, they shoot someone at home, and then they commit a mass shooting incident. Mm -hmm. And now what the Supreme Court wants to do is take away the federal right for them to restrict gun permits so they can have gun permits. They can get gun permits. They want them to have gun permits at 18. Mm -hmm. And so your whole, you know, as you were saying, Michelle, you know, that we're not, we're not safe and that we have to collectively look out for each other. I will say, and I'd love to hear your, all of your perspective on this. I was pleasantly surprised, even though it's the chaos of this case, but the Carly Russell issue when you watched social media, now I'm not talking about Facebook per se, but many of the other social platforms, that just could be my feed and my algorithm, but definitely all over TikTok, everybody was looking for her. Like you, we saw white, black, yellow, like every woman and, and men were just, everybody was trying to help find her. So it feels like, yes, you know, it feels like our community and I mean, broad community as American citizens are starting to get it and starting to see the things that we are all talking about all the time and now are stepping up and trying to help. And so we do need that. Did you, did you guys observe that as well? Yes. Yeah. And so let's say that there wasn't a child out there. Let's say that 
maybe she had a mental health crisis. Okay. I, I didn't see the press conference, but I, you know, let's just say that's the case. If that's the case, here's another challenge we have. The Surgeon General, Vivek Murthy, before the COVID pandemic, before, a year before the COVID pandemic, we already knew that our children, our young people, were in a mental health crisis. Mm -hmm. And it was not addressed. It was not addressed. So now the Biden administration comes in. We're still in a mental health crisis. As soon as Vivek Murthy is named Surgeon General, he addresses it immediately, but we're not calling it. We're already dealing with a pandemic, but we're not calling this mental health crisis an epidemic. Mm -hmm. We're not giving, we're not surging resources where they need to be surged. Mm -hmm. We are fortunate enough to have now, you know, in the South End, the, um, the KJ Wright, the, the center, which is an all-in-one. We need more of these. It's all-in-one recreation, mental health, you know, where you can have all of your needs addressed. But we need more of these. They have them in Minneapolis, where at school, mm -hmm. kids, when they are, are having emotional or mental breaks, they can have that all addressed at school. But we're not dealing with these things it's a it's a great add to this conversation and actually to emphasize the fallout of covid how it has how there has not been resolution and the impact on many people um many workers not wanting to come back into the office like the whole mental health um, issue yes. is real and to my knowledge i don't know Aaron if you or Karen have any um, insight into organizations this way um but I'm, I have been asking questions like, are benefits changing for, like, have we increased mental health benefit support um, in organizations? Are we, you know, this was probably a good conversation to see if we can get any of these executives who don't want to face a camera and talk to the public about it. But, you know, usually what is the, you know, employee assistance programs that they have in organizations? Have they increased that? Are they giving additional leave? Like, are things being done to help? Maybe any of our audience, if you're watching and you have feedback about that, is anything happening in your organizations that you think is worthy of us knowing about, of people helping to address organizations to help address mental health? Do any of you, um, See, it sounds like I'm blinking out. Can you guys hear me okay? Sounds like Aaron can't. Michelle and Karen, you can't? Okay. Sorry, Aaron. Um, do do either of you have any perspective about... Can you hear now, Aaron? Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Um, I, I couldn't hear a lot of what you said, but I think I've got enough. Um, man... Mental health. Mental health has been such an issue since before the pandemic. And I think the pandemic just kind of exposed people to the reality that I knew as an educator for 30. I mean, I've been in education 32 years. I knew there was mental health crises 10 years ago, 15, 20 years ago. Um, but I think we finally, it became wide open. I think because students were sharing on social media, we were getting to see um, at home, parents were, were beginning to see up close and personal, they couldn't avoid seeing their children and what their children were walking through. I think here's the challenge, and I've been talking to, there's a candidate running for state superintendent right now that shall remain nameless, but he's going to run against our current state superintendent. And one of the things we've been talking about is it's one thing to say there are, there are greater mental health issues now. It's another thing to actually have a plan to address it. And what I love about this particular candidate is he has a plan. So as he runs, he's gonna roll out this plan that he has to address mental health. Um, the challenge is we gotta show with our money, we, we can, it's so easy to talk about addressing mental health. It's a whole different thing to actually fund mental health programming and school spaces. Mm -hmm. And I do think it's, and I think this was already said, but I do think it's really critical that those services be provided in the school space. If we are expecting students to get it outside of school, there are way too many um, cultural norms that will make it difficult for our black and brown and immigrant students to get the health, the mental health care they need outside of school spaces. 
either because of shaming in different communities or lack of access. So I think we really need to be thinking about, we need to have a long-term plan. And so one of the things that I've talked to a number of people about is how do we get more black and brown people trained to be therapists and to do this mental health work because we don't have large numbers. And so I think we're gonna need to use um, telehealth for a while to make sure that our students have folks who look like them that they can feel comfortable sharing with. But I think we have to use the school space as a place. And that means we've got to invest in staff. And what I know as a classroom teacher is we are asking classroom teachers to do way too much. I was providing support as a teacher and a coach and a counselor and a big auntie and mom to so many kids. And there's just not, most people don't have the capacity for that. And so I think we absolutely need to fund it. We can't say it's important and then not be willing to fund it and just allow it to be funded where people can afford it because we know then, of course, who will get access to it and who won't. And so I think if states are really serious, they have got to invest resources and we can't just have one psychologist that is being shared across a system, like from mm -hmm. elementary, middle, high school, that person is supposed to serve that whole, and that's what's happening in a lot of places right now. And that's a recipe for failure. I see one of our, um, a couple of our listeners are commenting. I see a comment that um, Ruby makes about, she doesn't know of anything helping with this vast mental health crisis. I agree with that, Ruby. And I, you know, Erin is talking about it from the um, school's perspective, the teachers and the students. My experience has been in organizations when black women raise issues or put a white flag up that we need help or that we're overwhelmed or we need a couple of days off. We're not believed. And so that whole, you know, when we, I'm going to go to commercial here in just a couple minutes, when we come back, I want to talk about the workplace and how this is actually playing itself out in the workplace as well and where we're headed. But it's a long winded way of saying, um, continuing to try to use the exact same system with 24 days of sick leave a year or whatever the organizations currently have, those numbers need to at least triple given the conditions of society that Black people and Black women are um, living in. I'm going to go to commercial really quick. And when we come back, I want to talk to you all about a local issue, what I'm calling another hunting down of one of our elected judges in Bremerton we'll talk about. So we'll be right back. Hi, I'm Basa Gordon from Converge Media, Hits 106.1, and Back to Basa on Fox 13. And I'm Buki Gates from Baseball Beyond Borders. And we are here at T-Mobile Park, where on July 7th, they will host the very first ever HBCU Swing Man Classic. That's right, Basa. Ken Griffey Jr., the kid, has rounded up 50 of the very best ball players from HBCUs from all across the country, from schools like Jackson State, Grambling, Southern, FAMU, North Carolina a t Alabama State, and many more. It's literally the all-star game before the all-star game, right? Exactly. And the fact that the very first HBCU Swingman Classic is happening right here in the Emerald City is a big deal. A big deal indeed. And it sounds like a whole lot of black college homecoming vibes. You already know what it is. Don't miss out on this historic opportunity to see the very best of the best black college baseball players right here at T-Mobile Park on July 7th. Tickets are on sale now at allstargame.com. That is allstargame.com. See you there. COVID-19 hurt my income, my health, and my family. We were about to lose our home when we heard we might be eligible for homeowner assistance funds from the government. We called 1-877-894-HOME and a housing counselor stepped in. They talked to our lender and saved our home because falling on hard times does not have to mean losing your home. Federal funding details at WashingtonHAF.org. The new COVID-19 updated booster provides the best protection available right now. So don't wait, stay safe this summer and get your updated booster today. To find a free vaccine provider near you, go to kingcounty.gov forward slash vaccine. One in every 500 African-Americans in the U.S. suffers from sickle cell disease. One in three African-American blood donors is a match for patients with sickle cell. One appointment to donate blood with the American Red Cross can help save a life. Will you be that one? Visit redcrossblood.org slash ourblood today to schedule an appointment at a location near you. 
Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Heartbeat. I am your host, Cindy Bright. Thank you for joining us this evening as we are uh, continuing a conversation uh, about what I'm calling the attack on Black women and a call to action. Um, I want to jump into some things here in Washington State that are going on. Before I do that, I want to acknowledge uh, several comments that have come in on the feed. I want to uh, acknowledge uh, Jay Martin Jr., um, who's one of our big uh, stars here at Converge. So Jay, thank you for your comments about supportive teachers. I also see Kelly, um, who commented about uh, she is a neurofeedback provider and she wants to be a part of a network um, outside of the school system so that she can help. Thank you, Kelly, for joining this conversation and this movement that we need to have of support. And then we also have Rebecca, uh, who is also... Um, uh, she is an African-American woman with a master's in social work. Um, she's offering mental health trainings and group facilitation. Rebecca, thank you for being a part of the solution as a community that we need. This is why we do this show. This is why we do this work is to harness our collective power as people, our collective power as Black people. Let me jump into um, what's going on here in the state of Washington before I bring my guests back in. You know, I've watched you. Many of you know I'm a former HR executive. I spent 30 years inside of major companies. I've sat at the top levels, the top ranks of these organizations, and I have watched and seen what goes on in these organizations with respect to Black people. I also know what I'm going to call the playbook of how uh, Black women are taken down. And it, um, there's a lot to unpack with that, but there is another, um, if you paid attention uh, in the last um, three to four weeks, I've had Dr. Karen Johnson on with me a couple of times. Dr. Karen Johnson's public firing is one that um, I can't let go out of my spirit because I've actually uh, read the reports about her, what was written about her. I've written, I've read the pettiness of which people uh uh, hunt us down, hunt black women down. And now I'm observing something else. I want to show it to you. So I want to show you first off, I want to show you this photo. I don't know if many of you know who Judge Tracy Flood is. Judge Tracy Flood uh, is an elected official in Bremerton Court, Municipal Court. And I was scouring the um, court's website. And let's just show some of the text messages, some of the messaging that is someone's going on and it's kind of hard to read, but um, there's some um, some comments being made about her uh, in classic form by somebody who's cryptic and doesn't have the balls to show who they are. They just want to put an initial up there and a photo and they start making comments that are very derogatory about uh, Judge Flood. Now Judge Flood is under an investigation. Does this sound familiar? Does it sound familiar to us as Black women that as soon, the way that I posted it um, when I produced or advertised the show is about as soon as there's a whimper or a tear about something that we're doing, then this whole process kicks in to hunt and take us down. Let's bring in back my commentators with me this evening, Aaron Jones, Michelle Dotson, Karen Fleshman, she's still here with me. I think Karen may have only been able to be here on the first half. Um, Aaron and Michelle, did you catch the story about Judge Flood and what are your thoughts about what's going on there? It's so typical. <laughs> it's so typical. You know, I, I, there's so many people that don't know. I'm, I'm going to give a parallel story that and this is for history because I think so many people don't know this story in this area that need to know this story. Let's talk about critical race theory and why it became the boogeyman. There's a gentleman, and I use that term very loosely, named Christopher Rufo. At the time critical race theory became the boogeyman, Christopher Rufo lived in Seattle. He was a failed city council candidate in 2018 running out of Ballard. And he was running on a serious NIMBY 
not in my backyard platform as he and his wife rented an apartment in Ballard. Georgetown grad, he's now one of D Satan, as I call him, DeSantis's boys at, um, uh, what is that? The uh, New Univer uh, University. He's on the board there. New the college, board. yeah. Um, I cannot make this up. And so he said he found criti critical race theory being used at, um, uh, what was the facility? I forget the name of the facility, Sanmar, at Sanmar. And that's a federal, federally funded um, facility. And so he, uh, he, Alan West got him on to Tuckum show on uh, fake news network and um, we know who saw him and it became a thing. And so that's how they attacked DEI. Now, it goes back even further than that because Alan West knew uh, Ed Boone's buddy. And I know this because I know how Prop 209 started in California with Ward Connerly and Ed Bloom, that Kimberly Crenshaw, the mother of critical intersectionality, thank you, um, who defended was on Anita Hill's mm -hmm. representation team when she defended Anita Hill during Clarence Thomas's nomination, it goes back that far. And yes, they are that petty. Mm -hmm. And that's what it's all about. Erin, did you have something to add for that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I know that Christopher Rufo now lives in Gig Harbor. So, you know, when when people think all the time that Washington State is just so progressive and it's so, we're so innocent out here, like, you know, it's not that clean. And um, he's done so much harm to so many people. Um, I didn't he's know. I didn't Gig know that Harbor. he'd run for office. He run. Yeah, I mean, his I, I, parents are from Gig Harbor. That's why. Yeah, but I mean, it's, which it's, is not surprising to me. Yeah, but it's a small little circle, mm -hmm. and that's how it all started. And so, um, but they they pulled him. Once it, they got him a grant at the Heritage Foundation, and it all went from there. And that's how he got to the new university. With he's at, actually in Florida right now with De, with DeSantis, torturing those poor right. children. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the staff. I mean, the staff were all. Everyone was let go. Um, the board was completely let go, and they they. So I, I think here's what I want to say, because this came up in Ellie Collins' show last night, too. And I, I just want to invite us. The conservative folks have had a playbook for a long time and they've yes. been very intentional and they are well funded and well resourced and they have a playbook. And you can see this with the Moms for Liberty. You can see this yeah. with um, just all of these little Heritage Foundation, all of these little groups that appear to be innocuous. They appear to be one offs. But really, they're all being funded by the same big organizations. And the challenge for us, I think, is we have to get intentional because we have not we have not been intentional as a group. And I love what you said earlier about Asian people and Black people and the Latina folks. We have to come together, and we can't allow the division that is being sown between us right now. We can't allow for that. And white people have been willing to to vote against their own best interest poor white people have been set up against us too but we have to find ways to to collaborate with one another and to build up purses that we can use to to hire lawyers and um, because the right has all of that set up so they already have a schedule for when they're going to push things so yes. critical race theory then transgender i mean they have a playbook that they're playing by and we don't have a playbook well, isn't it, so it, isn't, it, isn't it 
I mean, maybe this isn't the right word to say, but isn't it curious that like we all know this is a playbook because we've we live this life. And so we live the life of having to watch over our um, shoulders all the time. We know that if there's any kind of incident anywhere, we're not we're the ones who won't be believed. And we also know that in the workplace environments that we don't have an outlet or an avenue to go get any basis of support. And so, you know, when, when I'm back, I'm bringing back, you know, Judge Flood, you know, what happens, you know, I, I'm watching these electeds, Representative Melanie Morgan went through um, her own, you know, uh, investigation. I mean, all of us have to be investigated, like we're just some criminals or something, or, um, you know, it's just so extreme what is happening to us and that playbook to um, defend the patriarchy, which comes out of both Democratic and Republican parties. So it's not just to one party. We sit here and watch what um, our first chief equity officer, what she faced um, trying to implement and move things forward. And so no one ever has our backs. And so how do, how do we navigate a system like this that only wants us to show up to make sure they get elected and to make sure that they continue to have power and that they continue to earn all the money, but they won't defend or protect us in this process. I'm concerned, you know, Judge Tracy. We have to speak up and speak out and then stick together and yeah. be that intentional. Because I'm going to tell you something where I kick myself. Two, one way where I know where I know I did the right thing and one way where I feel like I could have done more. One, we, we know I did something very unpopular, which, you know, I still sometimes, it was the right thing for me to do. I know it had consequences for other people which was um, speaking out against someone for not standing up for us when someone in authority allowed something to happen that could have had consequences for us. And when I think about the fact that that person was allowed to resign and go on to Akron and 10 months later, Jalen Walker happened, I know I did the right thing. Because it could have been one of my daughters. It could have been your, your son. You, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then I think about sitting on a call where I heard someone in Democratic leadership intentionally say he was raising money to stop someone, a woman of color from running against him. A democratic woman of color from running against him. And I thought to myself at the time, if this is what you're saying, to this group, what do you say about the rest of us? And I thought, wow, this not mm -hmm. this knowledge, wow. Mm -hmm. But I didn't say anything. Mm -hmm. I mean, I went back and said something to the person, but I didn't say anything publicly. Mm -hmm. But he felt comfortable enough saying that out loud. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, we have a question that's come in. Um, I want to put that question up. What role does the EEOC uh, and the HRC play in these instances? It's a great question. Mm -hmm. um, I'm going to attempt to try to give a little bit of context. I want Aaron, you and Michelle to chime in too with your knowledge of this. Because um, Aaron, you you said earlier, so the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission uh, is a government entity uh, that investigates these issues when people file complaints. Now, 
I'm dated working with those kind of entities. I used to work for the federal government in my early career, so I don't have a, a strong amount of knowledge in that space anymore. I do know what I have observed um, as a corporate person and as a self-employed person, that there's a couple of firms here in the Seattle area. They're Black-owned firms that the state government and the city government has on retainer and or is paying some big money to to. Uh, write investigative reports that protect the people in power. I've, I've read them and I've seen the same names appear on the same reports for every different black woman that I've read the information on. So the government is using um, an, a system and a people and a firm that is black owned so that they can defend themselves, that they are not prejudiced or doing anything um, to harm black people. Look, we hired, you know, I have a black friend. I mean, we hired a black firm to do it and she's saying this, but she's incented to do it because of the kind of money that she's making from at who's going to compromise. Let me say that different. Some of us don't sell our souls for cash. Uh, some, some of us learn to live different in order to be right and be good and to be able to sleep at night. Erin, you were commenting about that a little bit ago too, about like co the collective power that we need to work together to have the funds to get attorneys involved, like so that we can give money uh, trying to help Black women be able to acquire support to take on these companies or these organizations. You have some more I mean, the, the thing that... Yeah, the thing that I wanted to say is, you know, one of the simplest ways to think about white privilege is white privilege gives people the opportunity to have a second chance to um, be innocent until proven guilty. The reality for us is we don't get that opportunity. And you and I both learned that in our campaigns for office is you make a mistake and the assumption immediately is guilt. Right. And then when when that initial assumption is guilt and you don't have that opportunity to be presumed innocent, then anyone can find any evidence to line up to that. Like whatever you go in believing, you will find evidence to prove that this is true. White people have the benefit of being presumed innocent. And then people go in and will find factual, factual information to demonstrate that they're innocent. And I think that is a real challenge. I also think um, it is really difficult to walk through a court case. It's, and, and people bank on that, right? So they bank on the fact that we can't afford the money for a lawyer. They bank on that. So we're going to hope that she will just quit. Like I think about Tracy Flood and I know of Tracy more than I know her personally. Um, I've been, I do a lot of work in Bremerton with the school. So we've run into each other, but I don't really know, know her. Um, but I know that they're banking on, she will just quit and they won't have to fire her. That's what they're banking on just with this whole process. And, and I think that is unfortunately how often so many of us lose our, we lose our positions is we end up feeling the pressure to quit because we don't have the resources to have anyone behind us to fight. And so one of the things we've talked about with schools is, you know, the NAACP has fought really hard for black students in Washington state across the state. Um, but we don't have a similar organization that's fighting for black folks in corporate spaces and government spaces. Well, and that's and, a problem. And, but, but Paul, was it, was, who was the, I forget the name of the person that posed the question. They're right. EEOC, HRC, the state equivalents should be in a position to do, to, to act on it for, for employment claims. Here's the challenge we have. When we're ping-ponging back and forth with completely different, um, you know, four years, it's uh, the agency is in um, Republican hands, four years, it's in Democratic hands, then nothing really gets accomplished, which is exactly what the Republicans want. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you read the article by Maggie Haberman and Jonathan Swan, you know, what, what is, what is everything going to look like the administrative state if Trump is elected for four more years, they plan to make him a unitarian president. What I'm, befuddled about is the fact that no one has at, has posed the question or asked the question. If the plan is to make him 
And the, uh, just so you know what a unitary unitarian president means, means he's he's president king. It's it's fascistic, okay. No one has said yet that I have seen. Well, will he leave? I mean, since this is his second term, and you're going to make him president king, will he leave? I mean, since he was going to try to stay president in 2020, what will incite him to leave? That's what. That's that's how this usually works. I mean, if you're going to have a coup. You know what a failed coup is. It's a practice for the next coup. Cindy went with me to Washington, D.C. for the 4th of July. Let me tell you what I am now calling Washington, D.C. Chirac-Ganistan. They had major streets and all monuments blocked off with heavy equipment because there is a memo out that nobody's really talking about that's in effect and through the elections this year um, because they expected people to blow stuff up. And that's what it looked like. It looked like we were in a war city, like 9-11 had happened all over again, but this time in DC, it was that fortified. Mm-hmm. And I say yeah, that it was, to it was, you, I, it, Michelle witnessed me tripping, right? Like, like yes, yeah, you know, just tripping on what what was happening back there. Um, and it did not, yeah, it, it it was. And the reason why I mentioned that, if that's what it looks like on the outside, that chaotic. Mm-hmm. Imagine what these agencies, EEOC, the ones they want to tear down, mm-hmm. EEOC, HRC. They're, they're practically non-functional. Mm-hmm. Thank God we have Kristen Clark, who it took some, it, it took like an act of, I mean, I, I, I'm i going to tell you how this works because you people should know this is how this works too. When we were trying, when they're, they're, the judicial crisis network, which is literally across the alley from the Supreme Court, they're the people that pay $125,000 to have lunch with, with the, the, the radical right wing supermajority of the Supreme Court. Um, when they were putting ads up against Kristen Clark so she couldn't, she wouldn't get nominated, there were people like us paying $10,000 to have a call with Patty Murray to say, Get on it, please. Get her through the nomination process. What's taking so long? Even if you guys have to forego your August recess, get her through. We need her to be running the civil rights section. Mm-hmm. And that's how things get done. You know, um, one of our uh, listeners, uh, Ruby, was commenting about um you know, us as the strong black women, you know, we can turn this around and we can do these sorts of things. We can, Ruby. Um, it's just, I think for most of us, I mean, I talk to, these are my sisters here on with me. We all talk regularly. It's a, it's a, it's taxing on us to have to contend with this mentally every single day. And these, you know, these ecosystems, EEOC, HRC, one of the conversations I've been having and I'm just going to share it, um, is there are Black women talking about a way that we can start to set up funds um, where we can help give retainer agreement, a retainer money to Black women to help them get counsel. Because to Aaron's point, you know, I, I am a successful plaintiff. Like I went through a nasty major lawsuit 10 years ago with an employer. Aaron's not wrong. Um, I depleted everything I had to fight because what was happening was an injustice. And I, I won that lawsuit, but I had to start my life all over again, you know, after that. And so the resources at 50, mind you, right. And so it is robbing us of our ability to have a livelihood because, you know, retainer fees are between 10 and $20,000 just to retain an attorney. And then there's not a lot of them here in the Seattle area, a lot of employment attorneys. 
um, that can actually take these cases on contingencies and you know, the whole way that that works is even though, even if you're on a contingency, there's still a lot of costs that come at you. So it's very, very expensive to sue. And to Aaron's point, they're banking on the fact that we, they have, it's not that we don't have it, the resources we don't, it's that they have stolen and taken the resources away from us in order to keep us in this submissive stance, which is having to depend on these folks to make a living. Right. So it's this vicious circle and this EEOC. I mean, I haven't interacted with them in my old days. I mean, it's a typical government process. I don't mean that to be offensive, but the government works at the pace. I mean, are you following the student loan process now that needs to be followed? I mean, it's like years of work. And so what happens to that black woman in the meantime when her case is in the pipeline of 5,000 other Black women all saying the same things? And then do we ever resolve these um, issues financially lucrative enough through EOC? Did you have something, Erin, to add about that? Yeah, I, you know, I just wanted to add that, you know, if there are any white people watching, mm. especially from the Seattle area, I think there are a lot of white people who say they want to be allies. They say they want to be accomplices. One of the things that you could do if you're a white person watching right now is you could take this on and you could use your energy and your networks to begin to build an organization because we are out here. Oh, she just froze up. I know. Oh, it was, let me, I'm going to see if I can finish her thought process here. Um, it's a great ad that for, because this audience that follows Heartbeat is not just Black people. There are, I do know there are several white women that watch the show as well. And what Aaron was getting at is, you know, white people have the wealth. They they have it based on historical, um, you know, labor of our families um, that they now possess can we find our allies who will start to set up these funds and or who will help to fund some of these legal costs for Black women who are going through this battle? Um, it's a fair question for us to ask because um, we are still at the 53 cents to the dollar and we are the people who are hunted for to come in and fix everything and then hunt it down afterwards. Erin, I was trying to finish your thought, but go ahead and pick back up with where you were. Yeah, you did a great job. I, <laughs> I could hear you. Um, I just think it's really easy in Seattle and in progressive spaces for white people to sit on the sidelines and put up their Black Lives Matter signs and, um, and really think they're doing something. And I don't want to say don't put up your Black Lives Matter sign, but if that's all you're doing, that's mm -hmm. actually not really helpful. Um, what you could do is gather a group of other white people and begin to pull some resources, begin to build some um, some capacity within yourselves to support Black women as the, and that, like, I don't really want to see another Black Lives Matter sign, to be honest. Um, it's kind of exhausting. And I know that people just don't know any better. A lot of people just don't know better. They feel like that's a great thing and it's a great first step, but it's not, we need people to take action and to invest, like put your, put your money where your mouth is. I, mm -hmm. I, I would say the same to people in government positions. I say the same to companies. Um, when companies say they want DEI training, I'm like, are you willing to put your money where your mouth is? Because it's really easy to say you want diversity. It's really easy to say that you want to change the culture of your organization. Well, just putting up a website and making sure you have pride statements and Black Lives Matter is actually not helpful if you're not changing what you're doing and how you're supporting people. So I want to invite you, if you're watching, um, a, a simple thing that you could do is just begin to build a network of other white, like like-minded white people who could begin to invest some resources and um, and begin to support us and other Black women who are yeah. without the maybe capacity or resources. You can begin to support us in ways that really could be substantial. Yeah, it's a great um, it's a great point, Erin. I appreciate that you brought that through. You know, we're at the hour, and again, these conversations go so fast because I know all of us could talk about this for hours because we do talk about it for hours. So let me just first off thank um, you, Erin and Michelle, for coming on with me tonight. We are continuing this conversation, so uh, this is not the last of it. Uh, we're headed into 
uh, an ickier political season of which the increase on uh, Black women is going to, to um, increase. Uh, again, not believed, don't want us to have power, want to take away everything that we have because we have not only achieved the bar that has been set for us, we have exceeded it. And because we have exceeded this bar of knowledge and academics, and um, we um, are the people who are being hunted. And so, um, and that's real. And for those of you who potentially are listening to report in to the governor or whoever you're watching on behalf to say, what is Cindy saying tonight? You can pass on this message to him and to the leaders in charge, be better. Like you hire, you bring us in and you want us to help fix, stop believing the crap that is being brought to you about us and start believing what black women say. Thank you all for joining us this evening and we'll look forward to continuing this conversation. I will see you all next Wednesday evening at 5.30. Have a good week, everybody. Half that up the sacks, I favor black businesses. Assuming you're rooting for everybody that's black. Yeah. Uh-huh, yeah. Converge Media produces culturally relevant content for black and urban audiences. Our coverage is raw, transparent, and objective, praised by community leaders, government officials, and residents. Support Converge Media today via Venmo, Cash App, or PayPal at Converge Media.